0: All right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. All right, so uh,
1: welcome this morning. Today we have Gary Sinclair. He's an associate pastor at uh, First Pres, Jackson. Um, so he's filling in for us today in the pulpit as well. So I think today you're going to give us a sketch of Athanasius. Yeah. So Athanasius happens to be the name of our presbytery, so there'll be a little, little connection there. So. Um, well, let's uh, let's open the prayer. Father, I uh, want to thank you now for this time that we could come together. We thank you for this gathering of your saints. I pray that you would uh, encourage us by hearing uh, some of the history that you have woven together um, through this this uh, Godly man Athanasius. Father, help us to be encouraged. We pray this in Christ's name. Well,
0: right, Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's a joy to be with you. Um, part of the, the way I got connected here was through uh, Wes Streebeck. I think that he's been here with you a couple of times. And so uh, we've gotten to know each other quite well uh, at RTS and obviously at First Pres. Uh, he's in the process this weekend. He's actually um, up north in Kentucky, I think it is, as he's preparing to possibly go to Scotland. And so he's in some training uh, in preparation for that. So. Uh, Yeah, it's just nice to be able to see connection. I know a couple of people from this congregation, and so it's nice just to see your faces, and hopefully I'll be able to meet a few more of you as uh, this morning continues. So this morning, um, as has already been alluded to, we're going to be looking at uh, a man in church history. Uh, Has anyone, have you all heard of Athanasius? Well, you must have if this is your presbytery name. I guess you've all heard of Athanasius. Has anyone read anything on Athanasius? All right. I want to, part of my my desire in in teaching on those who have gone before us is an encouragement that hopefully you'll pick up something about those men that God has used and dig down a little bit and just see the fingerprint of God on their lives, but also so that that may be an encouragement to your own life. You know, as we go through the different seasons of uh, ups and downs, it's good to read the testimonies of how God has been at work in the lives of those who have gone before us. And so I'm hoping that you'll pick up something on Athanasius, maybe a biography, uh, maybe one of his writings, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a a short while. So before we go any further, let me just pray as we commit this time to the Lord. Okay. Father, I give you thanks, and we give you thanks for the great privilege of gathering together as your sons and your daughters. Uh, We thank you that it is a joy and a privilege to gather together in a place where there is no persecution, that there's a freedom together and to adore you. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at this man, Athanasius, Lord, that you would uh, allow us to see your fingerprints of mercy and grace and love and providence in this man's life, and that that in turn may be a reminder to each and every one of us as to how you're at work in our own. Father, I pray that our lives may be a living testimony to who you are and all that you do for us in Christ Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. So, before I I look at Athanasius, I want to invite you to turn with me to a couple of passages in Scripture. Um, One is from Romans chapter 12, verses 12. Romans 12, verses 12. And then we'll look at a verse from Psalm 119. And then a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 5. Part of the reason for taking you to Scripture is... Is to remind us how God uses His Word and how, in this case, how God used these three particular texts uh, to pierce Athanasius' heart, but also ultimately, uh, in some sense, to encourage his heart uh, as he proceeded through his Christian walk. And so, Romans chapter 12 and verses 12, we read as follows Paul writes, He says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. In many respects, um, this text was very dear and close to the heart of Athanasius, and you'll see that as we go through his life, just in terms of what he actually endured and what he went through, and how the Lord was at work in the situation and circumstances of life. In one of his his essays, he actually used Romans 12, verses 12, and he compared his own tribulations and said that they were consistent with the Apostle Paul. Now, whether that's a a hyperbole or not, I I don't know. Um, But as you begin to understand a little bit of what this man went through and how the Lord sustained him, um, I guess that was his thorn in the flesh, his cross, uh, his suffering and so much more. Psalm 119, if you can turn with me to verse 143. Psalm 119, verse 143. Another text that was dear to Athanasius. And it reads as follows. The psalmist says, Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Just that. And then the final text is from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is the constant theme in all three of those verses? It should be pretty obvious. What is it? Hard times. Hard times. All right. Um, persecution, tribulation. Uh, Athanasius' persecution and tribulation was perhaps. Um, a little more than most of us, what most of us will face, uh, and yet each and every one of our lives we can, we can testify to the fact that it's often in the hard times, in those times which seem to sweep us right off of our feet, that we, we, kind of, um, we understand a little bit more clearly the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness of our God, and so uh, hopefully that's one of the things that we're going to see in the life of Athanasius this morning. So Athanasius' name, it means immortal. Uh, One biographer said that uh, there was no name that was more fitting for this man called Athanasius. Uh, Another biographer said this. His life was one of high action and heroic bravery. His incisive mind, ready smile, along with the sheer force of his personality, will make him entirely unforgettable. Even on his epitaph, Uh, It gives us insight into the kind of person that he was. His epitaph actually reads Athanasius Contramundum. Uh, There's some Latin scholars in here, I think. Are there? All right. What does that mean? Athanasius Contramundum. All right. Against the world. That's right. Athanasius against the world. And again, (coughs) if that's on his epitaph, it gives us insight and, and clarity with regards to some of the dynamics of his own life. And we'll see that a little bit this morning. Now, from a human perspective, I think it's safe to say that this guy is the one that we need to thank God for, for giving clarity to Christian orthodoxy within the first 300 years or so, 350 years. He he really had an incisive mind to be able to, with precision, sort out the details so that we may have clarity with regards to the Trinity and with regards to the nature of the human and the divine in the being of Christ. Uh, And so that's going to be very important as we we kind of uh, tease this out this morning. The first couple of hundred years, uh, we know that Christianity, there was amazing growth that took place. And and yet, in the midst of the amazing growth, there was also a rising uh, number of false teachings and heresies that were... um, making inroads into the Christian community. And, and it really took someone like Athanasius to kind of sort those things out and to give meaning to what the Bible was teaching in terms of theology, and of course that would be both biblical theology and systematic theology, and of course how that applies to the um, individual life. So, before we look at the man, let me just try and paint a bit of a picture, give you a backdrop, the contextual backdrop as to where we are as we enter the fourth century. Uh, The prehistory to that is that Jesus has lived, obviously. He has been crucified. He has died. He's resurrected. uh, He has ascended. And, of course, there's been the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples in the upper room. I mean, we've got all those details for us in the book of Acts. The church as a result of two factors, sees unprecedented growth. I mean, they go from a a group of 12 to hundreds and then literally to thousands, and it's in the space of just a few short years. The two things, it's one thing and one person or a group of people that were instrumental that the Lord used. What are the things that come to mind? What thing really caused the expulsion and the growth of the Christian church in those early years? Yes, exactly. It's persecution. And of course, it, 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 in Scripture, in the, in the book of Acts, it culminates in some sense with the events of Acts 7, uh, where we have Stephen being stoned. And as a result of that persecution, the, the, the believers in Jerusalem spread out across Asia Minor and out west to what is modern-day Iraq and Iran, and maybe even further than that even going down into Egypt and the southern regions. And so we had this massive expulsion of Christians who were fleeing for their life, but at the same time, in God's providence, they were taking with them the gospel of the good news of Jesus. And wherever they went, because of their convictions and because the Lord had really gotten a hold of their heart, they took that with them and they spoke about it freely. The other detail, of course, was the events with the apostles. Um, Of course, Paul would come to a saving knowledge of Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And uh, he would see the living Jesus, and Jesus would say to him, Why do you persecute me? Not the church or these people, but why are you persecuting me? And it was as a result of the persecution and the the events in the Apostle Paul and the other 11 disciples that ultimately God used that as a means to uh, build and expand and grow the kingdom. And uh, we'll come back to that in just a short while. Now from around 45 AD, uh, the New Testament books begin to be, re- uh, to be uh, scribed. Okay? Uh, the first ones are some of the Gospels, the early Gospels. And the last of the New Testament books that was written was the book of, it's commonly understood to be by most people, that of Revelation, around about 95 AD, depending on your theological persuasion, there might be a bit of give and take there. but. Basically, within the the 50 years, all the New Testament books, the canon of Scripture from God's perspective, had been uh, written and complete. And those books and those materials were being circulated amongst the, the, the known churches in Asia Minor and, of course, as the church was expanding. And so people were getting to read about the life and the teaching of Christ. And, of course, the Lord was gathering in his own flock from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so it was just once again the establishment of the church, and and as God was doing his work. By the end of the first century, all the apostles had died. All the apostles had died. Most of them were martyred for their faith. We know that Thomas uh, was martyred in India, modern day India. Uh, We know that Bartholomew was martyred in Armenia. Uh, We also know that Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome under the uh, persecution of Nero. And so by the end of the first century, none of those original apostles are alive, but they had passed it on to the second generation, or the next wave, who would then take it forward and build up the church. Nero's persecution, or the persecution of the Christian church under Nero, uh, really was a blow in many respects, because it sorted out whether your convictions were sincerely for Christ, or whether you were just... A nominal associate of those who would call themselves and affiliate themselves with the way. And there's going to be another persecution we'll pick up on in just a short while that will um, drive that home even further. So as you enter the second century, there's a body of truth, okay, the word of God. Uh, people are still growing in their understanding of that body of truth. We need to remember that the body of truth wasn't sixty-six books in what we have in our modern day Bibles. Uh, These were scripts that were basically circulated and many of them were copied in order that the local chapter or the local congregation may have a a copy of that letter or um, that prophecy or whatever whatever that book was. And we also need to remember that just because they were receiving these books, they did not automatically have a complete and clear understanding of the the doctrines that were encased therein. And how that assimilated with all the other material that they had already received elsewhere. So they were still growing in their understanding. And hence in God's provision, you know, providence, I, I see it as His kind providence, that He allowed false teaching and heresies to be on the increase. Now why do I say that it was a kind providence? It sounds almost mean uh, as we say that. What happens in the midst of false teaching and, and heresies? Anyone? You what, right, right, That's right, yeah. Those who are faithful that Christ has, has, has gotten a hold of their hearts, they dig down deep into the Scriptures. They go back to the manual of faith in some sense. And as you dig down deep into the Scriptures, you begin to become very precise with regards to your articulation of that which is error and that which is in accordance with God's revelation of Himself. And that's what we begin to see taking place Uh, all the more in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries. So there was this growth of the gospel, there was the challenge of the heretical movements and the false teachings in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and yet in the midst of that, there was also God raising up numerous church fathers who would be equipped with the intellectual capacity to defend the faith against the opposition that was quite clearly on the increase. Does that make sense? Right. If you have any questions at any point, you're welcome to ask. Uh, I'm interactive, and so I'm, I'm quite open to that. If I don't have the answer, I'll delay it to one of the ruling elders, and they'll be able to do a fine job, I'm sure. All right. <laughs> now, if you were a believer... <laughs> yes, a question already? <laughs> as the letters were circulating, were the, yep. was the church taking that as Scripture? Um, you know, with the epistles and, and that kind of thing. I think, there's a sense, I think there's a sense in which whether they understood it to be scriptural or whether they understood that God was ministering through His Holy Spirit and revealing Himself to them through these pages that were being circulated, I think it's more the latter. Um, ultimately, the canon would come to be at the end of the, what's it, the late 2nd century, thereabouts, uh, I forget the exact date. But it wasn't in the form that we have it today. But people recognized God's Word when it was changing and transforming their lives, as it was being read, as it was being proclaimed, as it was being explained to them, and as they themselves got a copy of it. Um, Hence, there was this frenetic desire to make copies of that which had impacted the local congregation so that they could have that for themselves. Um, Michael Kruger, um, he's an RTS prof out in um, Charlotte, has done a, a couple of really good books um, detailing the establishment of the canon, and I would recommend that to you if you want to do some more reading on that. Um, he's done some good um, research on the, the establishment of, of the canon. Does that answer a little bit? Okay. All right. Any other questions? Okay. If you were a believer in the first three centuries, one of the things that really marked you out as a Christian is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It wasn't just a, a trite thing that was then, um, you know, believed in mind, but it doesn't actually transform and impact your life. It was something that they lived out because they understood very clearly that if this was not the conviction of your life, then why are you bothering with this Christian thing? Why don't you just follow one of these false teachings that are circulating? So it was really a conviction that had got a hold of their hearts. One author, one author summarized the first few centuries of the church in these words. That he said, they strove to spread the gospel and stay alive. You know, I, I even think of... I think in America, it's difficult for us to grasp and understand what it's like to live in the face of persecution where your life is not guaranteed from one day to the next. You know, you think of the stories that we're hearing out of Iran, which is the fastest growing church in the world at the moment. Uh, You think of the stories that have been coming out of China for the last 20 or 30 years where when the missionaries left there, what was that, about 80, 90 years ago, they thought, what's going to happen to the church and the Lord has been faithful to take the remnant of those, Christian, those Chinese Christians and to, for there to be an explosion of the Christian church. In the face of persecution, it's often you realize what is really fundamentally important in life. That you don't latch on to the little trinkets that this world has to offer you. But you realize that if you've got Christ, you have it all. And I think that one of the things that I wonder about the American church, and this is not a judgment, but I do wonder whether we are straddling the fence between really latching on to Christ and yet entertaining our lives with the trinkets that this world has to give. Sometimes persecution may need to come in order to drive out those who are nominally associated with the church and that this beauty of the gospel may be able to radiate from within the body of Christ. Does that make sense? I wouldn't wish persecution on anyone, but I do wonder whether that's what needs to happen just to beautify and glorify the, the body of Christ here in the States in terms of the Gospel. Any questions on that? Any pushback on that? Okay. So you're all praying for persecution. Okay, great. Now, as we enter the 4th century... Um, We enter into one of the fiercest periods of the Roman persecution. Um, This was under Emperor Diocletian. Uh, Emperor Diocletian uh, took the reins in 284 AD and basically reigned until 305 uh, AD for a 20-21 year period. It's said that there were more Christians martyred in those 20 years than the previous 250 years combined. Uh, So we're talking about someone who had an absolute brutal hatred towards those who were followers of the way. Uh, ultimately, he saw it as a threat to his own power, uh, that you know they were not bowing before him, but they were worshipping another power. Uh, and of course, we see that even in the Scriptures with regards to Caesar and, of course, Christ and so much more. But things were about to change. God is always on the move. Even in our own lives, when we think that things have reached a stability or something is just not transpiring the way that we want God is often at work in deeper ways in preparation for what is the next stage of the pilgrimage or the journey. And that's what was happening in the fourth century, the the late third century, and of course the fourth century. So I want us just to have a look at the man. That's a bit of the contextual backdrop. Um, Athanasius, he was born around 296 to 298 AD. Uh, We know virtually nothing about his youth or his childhood. That's pretty typical of most of the church fathers, by the way. It's almost as if that was their, their childhood and their youth was part of the seedbed in preparation for what it is that God wanted to use them for later on in the life of the church. And it's only when they really came on the scene that we begin to know a little bit more about them. Some of his admirers, some of Athanasius' admirers, said that he had angelic good looks. I don't know what that yeah. means. <laughs> uh, you can take it for what it is. Um, but his opponents called him the black dwarf. Um, In other words, and and that wasn't a kind expression, that was a derogatory expression, as you can imagine. Um, Again, it's a reminder that Athanasius, he comes from northern Africa. Um, He was not Caucasian. He was probably olive-skinned to dark-skinned, maybe even a black man. Um, I think sometimes when we see the pictures of the early church fathers, they've all got these halos around their head, and they're all Caucasian or white. And it's just not the reality. Um, It's far from the truth. One thing we do know is that at a young age, and we don't know the, the exact age in which that transpired, but he was headhunted by the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, uh, a man by the name of Alexander, Bishop Alexander, and um, Alexander was in uh, the routine of traveling around to search out those who were intellectually bright and who, who, who seemed to have a heart for uh, the things of the way, the truth, and the life, uh, the, the way of Jesus. And so he picked, he picked out Athanasius and gave him a first-rate theological education back in Alexandria. Remember, in Alexandria at the time, it was one of the best libraries in the world. So you had all the key texts that were centered in Alexandria. And here Athanasius has direct access to that. It was closed off to the majority world. And yet he had access to that. So once again, you see the hand of God in preparing him from a young age for that which he would need to obviously continue As the years went on, now as you can imagine, in his childhood years, Athanasius would see a number of prominent Christians uh, come into the home of Alexander, and they would never be seen again. Uh, Remember, martyrdom was part and parcel of the Christian's life. Uh, You didn't know whether you would be alive tomorrow. And many of the bishops, many of the priests who came to visit Alexander in in Egypt, in Alexandria. they would have a conversation. They would, they would share a meal, a uh, supper together. And the next morning as he's traveling back, that, my, that man may be taken out because of his profession of Christ. Now part of the reason that mentioning that detail is that as a young man who's, who's receiving a theological education, a first-rate theological education, for him to see people come into the house and never to see them again was part of the way that God was preparing him with regards to his own convictions. That this wasn't just a head knowledge having access to the library, but this head knowledge was being translated by the Holy Spirit through the life of these men who were coming and going into the heart in terms of his convictions for life. You know, as Christians, we can have a first-rate understanding of the Scriptures in terms of a head knowledge. If it doesn't impact your life and the way that you are living, it means nothing. Because the convictions have not been solidified. Uh, and we're going to see more of that both this morning and even in the text that we will look at uh, in our service together. So, three C's. I think this is in your notes. Uh, we have three C's that really can define the various seasons of Athanasius' life. Um, Constantine. Controversy and the council, the first council, the ecumenical council. And so the first of those C's is Constantine in 306. You remember Diocletian, he, he, he dies in 305 AD. 306, Constantine becomes the new Roman emperor. Uh, why was this significant? Do you know? Can you remember? At the end of
1: the
0: of That's right, yeah. Between three hundred and six and three hundred and twelve he continued with the measure of the persecution, so it didn 't die off straight away. Maybe there was an obligation to fulfill uh, and to uh, appease that which had been established by the previous leadership. But in three hundred and twelve a d in three hundred and twelve a d on the eve of going into battle, Constantine had a vision of the cross shining in the heavens, and emblazoned across the, the, the cross were these words: "In this sign conquer now Whatever our theology is, our visions and all the rest of it, I'm not going to get into this. But I do think that we need to recognize that whatever this was that impacted Constantine's life that evening or that day, it didn't just impact the way that he was going to go forward with regards to his role as the Roman emperor, but it also changed his view towards the Christians. Because the next year, in 313, he would sign the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan basically legitimized and made Christianity one of the options of religion within the Roman Empire. Whereas previously it was outlawed. Hence the persecution. So in 313 we had this massive change in terms of how people could view Christianity. And guess what happened when it was made legal? There was a mushroom effect again. Those who were sitting on the fence with regards to what they truly believed, saw the convictions of the Christians that they were willing to go all the way to be martyred for their faith, if that's what it took. And when all of a sudden there was religious freedom again, they wanted to ask more questions about who is this Jesus. It's a reminder in our own lives, when you're going through tough times, often people are not worried about what you're saying. They're actually watching your life as to what God is doing in the midst of the situation of life. Um, and often they will come to you later and just comment or ask questions as they go through similar uh, situations themselves. So again, this led to Christianity to be favored uh, over other religions, Uh, and again, the gospel went forth and the church grew, Um, but that's not to say that everything was plain sailing. Of course it wasn't. It never is in the Christian church. There's always struggles and, and difficulties. It also meant And at that time, when it was first initiated, it was a positive thing, but of course, over time, uh, it could be seen as detrimental to the Christian church because what Constantine was fighting for was he wanted to see church and state amalgamated, what we would commonly call Christendom, all right? His desire was that in the midst of giving freedom to the Christians, he wanted them to have total freedom in every area, and he wanted Christianity really to be promoted as the religion of the province or the religion of the empire. Now, of course, 500 years later, we would probably turn around and say, well, not 500 years, What's that? 1,500 years later, uh, we would turn around and say, well, that was probably detrimental to the true gospel because it invited a lot of nominal Christians to come in, etc., because they wanted to be associated. Um, Again, the Lord is at work in strange and mysterious ways, and we need to leave that... Uh, with him. Any questions on that side? Any comments, thoughts? Okay. Alright, the next the, the next of the C's that I want us just to, to consider is that of the controversy. Uh, in 318, uh, the year 318, there was a significant controversy that develops in Alexandria and Egypt. Um, and this controversy threatened the unity which Constantine had been striving for, this unity of church and state. Who was the the opponent or the person who was causing the controversy? Let me try and put it that way.
1: Arius.
0: Okay. All right. So that's exactly it. Arius. Um, he was one of the bishops in Alexandria, and uh, uh, he basically the controversy started with a comment that he made because he took umbrance with what Alexander had said in one of his sermons. Now the question that obviously arises or needs to be asked is, you know, what was the teaching that Alexander was giving that, was giving that needed to have a rebuttal from Arius, that he really felt he needed to publicly stand up and, and say something about? It really boiled down to this. Arius was asking these questions. Was there ever a time when Jesus wasn't? Was there ever a time when Jesus wasn't? In other words, does Jesus, like God the Father, have an eternal past? Has Jesus always existed, or was there a moment when He was created? Who are the modern-day Aryans, by the way? Mormons. And? Yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. So, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So, again, what we're going to see is just because something ultimately is condemned, it doesn't just disappear. Um, And hence we need to be on the lookout continuously uh, comparing that which is being promoted in our culture and our society to that which is given as a revelation of truth uh, in in Scripture. Now, hopefully as I I try to outline the questions that Arius was proposing with regards to the eternality of the Son, hopefully you begin to understand that that doesn't just have ramifications on our understanding of the person of Jesus, but it has ramifications with our understanding of the Trinity. And, and probably more important with regards to ourselves, it has ramifications with regards to salvation, the work of Christ. There is only one Savior who could unite God with man, and it was Jesus Christ who was fully God and fully man. He paid the penalty of God on our sin, taking our sin upon himself. In himself. And it was his death, his crucifixion, uh, the justice of God, that basically uh, allows us to come into communion with the Father. Uh, and so this has massive ramifications with, with regards to a number of factors. Now, the Trinity has always been something that's difficult to grasp. I, th- I don't think that there's anyone in here who can say, I've got it, I, I understand it. Because every single metaphor that we try to use as human beings will fall flat in some way. You cannot say that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is like ice, water, and vapor. Uh, it collapses on the, on the essence um, of, of the substance there, and, and many of the other analogies. They all fall, fall, all fall short. However, we do need to acknowledge that in the midst of not fully understanding it, the Bible is very clear in teaching it. Deuteronomy 6, there is one God. Of course, when you come to the New Testament, and of course there's allusions through the Old Testament, Absolutely. But the New Testament is very clear, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. All right. Any questions on that? You're right with that. So, what was the problem? What was the problem? Like many theologians in his day, Arius assumed that God is one. We would agree with him. There's a unity in the Godhead, right? Okay. He believed that God was eternal and that God was perfect. He also believed that God cannot change because that implies that there is that perfection becomes imperfect. The problem in Arius' mind is when people were saying that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was associating not as three persons within the one essence and substance of God, he actually assumed that, or in his own mind, he was saying that this is an advocation of tritheism. In other words, there's three gods. So in his mind, once again, the complexity of the Trinity uh, he didn't grasp, and as a result of that, he saw it as an infringement upon the unity of the Godhead itself. And hence, he publicly spoke out against that. The result of this public controversy is that Alexander, Bishop Alexander of Egypt, he convenes a meeting to examine Arius' views, and it was unanimous. Arianism was declared to be a heresy. That's in the local, it's like the presbytery level, I suppose, you would say. It was declared to be a heresy. The problem is that even though Arius was removed from his congregation in Alexander, he didn't stop promoting his, his, his teachings. And so what happened now, now that he was no longer affiliated to his local congregation, he had more time on his hand, and because of his, his determination... He actually was more determined than ever to actually get out and tell this teaching to as many people as he possibly could. He was very clever because he put his teaching to song. And here's one of, the words, one of the lines. He said, and I don't know what that tune sounded like, and I'm not going to sing anything, so don't ask me. But here's one of the lines that he found people humming in the streets of Egypt. There was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. In other words, there was a time when Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. That He was a created being. A a super creature, so to speak, but He was created at some point. And this is the teaching that started to float around and gain more traction, both in Egypt and, of course, beyond. One historian writes this. He says, Bishop was against bishop. People were against one another like swarms of gnats. They were fighting in the air. I think it's a beautiful description of of just what bad teaching uh, can do to us. We can turn on each other. Um, Any questions at that point? Because that led to the third of the seas, and that, of course, is the first of the ecumenical councils. The first ecumenical council, do you remember where it was?
1: Nicaea. Nicaea,
0: what year? 325. 325. 325 in Nicaea, it's near Constantinople. Interestingly, the major piece of writing that was used was the booklet that was written by Athanasius <coughs> himself. It was called On the Incarnation. If there's one little booklet, it's about 40 pages or so. Um, I would encourage you to pick it up and just see the precision in the way that he's dealing with the text of Scripture and how he is graciously actually showing that those who are teaching the false, the false teaching, how they are doing this uh, in error and that they need to turn. Um, So, On the Incarnation, it's about 40 pages, pick that up, it's it's pretty readily available online. This booklet, On the Incarnation, was not allowed to be spoken to at the council by Athanasius himself. He was only a local priest in in Egypt. And priests were not allowed to speak at this ecumenical (coughs) council, it was in the hands of the bishops that were allowed to do that. And so it was Alexander, his mentor... Um, who basically picked up on the Incarnation and used that as the tool to defend Orthodox Christianity against the rising um, false teaching of Arianism. 300 bishops signed a document uh, declaring that Arianism was a heresy. And at the same time, one of the the really good things that came out of that First Council meeting uh, was a creed that was formulated. And the creed was called the Nicene Creed. You may even say that's still... Uh, in your congregation here. But they were very, very careful in the wording that was used in order to reject Arianism. Here's part of it it says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, begotten, not made. That in itself, that statement there was a rejection of Arianism, of one substance with the Father. Once again, there's an eternality, they've always existed, and so on. But again, even though this heresy was rejected, it was deemed to be um, false teaching, even though it was rejected, Arianism did not simply disappear. Like most false teaching, most heresy, those who are convinced of it will actually die for it. Um, You're familiar with Gresham Machin. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, some of you may have read. He wrote a book in the early 19... I think it was 1923, Christianity and Liberalism. Actually, the original title was Christianity versus Liberalism, and he, he defined liberalism as another religion completely. It's interesting because even though it was an insightful piece of literature, it didn't put liberalism to death. It's still alive and well in many of the denominations. The denomination that I come from in South Africa, the Presbyterian Church, um, is probably largely liberal. Um, and and it's, it's, the weakness is, is that it has no message to offer with regards to the gospel hope in Jesus Christ. And so people are sitting under this teaching and they're completely blind. And if you want to be really honest, they're following the Pied Piper all the way down because they're not hearing about salvation in Christ. And that's happening even here in the United States in many denominations. Now, it's interesting because the majority of historians and theologians recognize that this is one of the biggest theological crises that ever hit the church, this in the Council of Nicaea. Um, And yet God faithfully raised up Athanasius to write the document, and of course Alexander to be able to defend uh, against the uh, (coughs) impending errors that were coming in. Now, again, uh, in 328... So this is after the council. Uh, In 328, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria dies, and Athanasius is appointed to succeed him. But it wasn't that there was no fight for the position. Guess who the other person was that they were trying to get into the position as Bishop of Alexandria? Arius. Arius. The guy who was deemed to be a heretic. He had done some good marketing and... uh, Political skills around the place, and he had tried to get his name put forward in order to take on that role. But in God's providence, once again, uh, he didn't receive that role. Um, Athanasius was 30 years old when he assumed the role as a bishop, and he would fulfill that role for the next 45 years. But they were 45 years that were not easygoing. There was a lot of controversy. The Arians uh, continued to come back periodically and try to convince the Roman emperor that Athanasius was teaching error and he's the one that needed to go. And so for 17 years, out of the 45 years that he was, in, he was the Bishop of Alexander, he was left and he, had to, he found himself having to flee from the city in order to spend time in a monastic order in the Egyptian desert. For 17 years... He spent in a monastic order. Many of us today, I think, would probably say, what a waste of time, what a waste of a life. But guess what he was doing in the the monastic order in the Egyptian desert? He was writing. That's exactly it. He was writing that which would be the legacy passed on to the next generation, and of course, ultimately, even to our generation today. Again, it's a reminder to us. We do not understand God's hard providences, but as Christians, as we keep looking to Jesus Christ, we use every situation of life in the midst of the providences that are given to us, trusting that the Lord is doing a good and a perfect thing in our lives for the extension of His kingdom. If He had just sat on His chair for 17 years, the church would be all the worse. We wouldn't have the documents that we have that gives us insightful understanding with regards to not just the controversies of the day, but also to how to actually defend against controversies, even in our modern day. And so hopefully that's an encouragement to you, whatever you're going through in your life at this very moment in time. Use every day looking to Jesus Christ to give you the strength, the grace, the mercy in order to do things that are going to be pleasing and glorifying to Him. Question. Yes.
1: What, what did he give us in terms of <clears throat> being able to fight against this? Was it a was it some ideas about logic, um, etc.? What 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 all was involved?
0: So this is one volume in a thirty-eight volume series on the Nicene and anti-Nicene fathers, and this volume is actually. Athanasius' selected works. In here, you've got on the Incarnation, uh, you've got um, against the Arians, so defense against the Arians. So in other words, what they believed. In other words, that obviously is advantageous to us today with regards to the Mormons and and everyone else. There's a statement of faith. There's also a description of the Nicene Creed, if I remember correctly. And then the other one is the life of Antony. The life of Antony is about a I think he was a monk. Um, but it's just—it's a beautiful biography uh, just telling us the story of how God is at work in the lives of those who have gone before us. I don't know about logic and so on, so there may be aspects of that, and maybe someone else can speak to that. Okay. Um, but this is one of the volumes. You can glance through this. There's, there's many other things in there if you want to have a brass through that. But
1: And um, you know, the, the whole of the collection of the I think Fathers is available at ccel.org. You can download the entire uh, selection.
0: And just pray that the Lord gives you two or three lifetimes to finish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's interesting because uh, ten of the volumes are committed to Augustine. Um, And we're not just talking about ten little volumes. We're talking about five or six hundred pages per volume. I mean, it's extraordinary uh, how these men use their time Maybe it's because they didn't have the distractions of our modern technological era, um, uh, and so much more. Uh, I'm sure that they found a lot more hours in their day. All right, thanks for the question. Any others? Any other questions? Sorry, one of the things I, min- I missed was it was Constantine, the Roman emperor, who called for the ecumenical council. Because he saw that what was happening in this false teaching that was spreading, it was causing a disruption between the church and state.
1: And Arianism constantly appealed to the emperor. Yeah because it left a place for human work to achieve salvation. Correct. Because if salvation was achieved entirely by Christ, who was eternal God, then that was considered to be a diminishing of man. And the emperors had this cult, of course, of the genius of the emperor, and you you had the the history of, uh, an emphasis of greco roman thought, on the ability of man to achieve greatness to know God whatever. Mm. And, and the teaching of Christ put man as entirely sinful and depended entirely upon God for salvation. And that, that could be very offensive to those who mm-hmm. sought to exalt themselves.
0: That's right, yeah. And hence it was very appealing when he, when he put, his, uh, put this teaching before the Roman emperors. Uh, of course it was a no-brainer they would take that on. Um, and so, under, under these, in, in the 45 years, um, Arius, or in the 45 years of Athanasius, and while Arius was still around and his followers, they appealed to the Roman emperors, five, five different Roman emperors, who basically caused him to flee into the desert for his life. Is that correct? I think that's the details that I had here. Yeah. Good, thank you. Any other comments? All right, let me just close up here. Um, his death. At 373, Um, he was 75 years old. Um, He may have been hated by his enemies. Uh, Very clearly that comes across, hopefully, in what we've been discussing uh, this morning. Uh, He was an outcast by the political leaders. They would rather have him having stepped away from his position. But we do know that the people in his congregation, in his diocese, or in his, you know, however you want to understand the regional church. They loyally supported and loved him. It's, it's recorded for us of how, even when he was in the monastic order in the Egyptian desert, there would be a weekly, if not more, group of people who would come from the local church in Egypt, bringing some, some resources and just to be an encouragement to him. Um, and I'll pick up on that in just a short while with regards to leadership today. So again... He served there for 45 years, he died at the age of 75, and that was the year 373. Just a couple of points of application, uh, how, what we can learn from his life. First one is this, doctrinal precision is important. Doctrinal precision is vitally important, especially on the key doctrines. There needs to be room for movement on secondary or tertiary doc, uh, doctrines of the faith. But in the key doctrines of the faith, there needs to be doctrinal precision. The difference between orthodoxy and heresy was one letter. It was the letter I. Arius was teaching that Jesus was homoousios, which means of similar substance, whereas Athanasius was teaching that Jesus is homoousios. In other words, he is of the same substance. That one letter I changes the entire implication with regards to the Trinity, the understanding of who Christ is, salvation, and everything else from there on out. So sometimes when people are fighting over the the precision of doctrines, uh, sometimes that's necessary in in order to iron out truth from error. Secondly, in terms of application, one of the things that comes forward from Athanasius' life is The conviction to live, or that we are people who ought to live by our doctrinal convictions. We ought to live by our doctrinal convictions. What I mean by that is, don't say that you believe one thing and live completely differently. It undermines the witness of the church, and ultimately, it's a blot against Christ, who we call our saviour. So again, have an intellectual understanding of the faith. Be able to defend the faith. But that intellectual understanding must be translated what Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, it must become an experiential knowledge of the truth. So that it actually warms the heart, it changes the desires and the affections, and that it transforms our entire life. It's head and heart committed to to Christ. Athanasius is the one that called Arius' ilk plunderers, and basically he saw them as a people who were plundering God's church. Do we understand that when this false teaching that tries to creep into the Christian church, you're dealing with the eternal salvation and destination of souls? Hence, does our doctrinal conviction get us to the place where we must, we must say something against the false the, the, the error and the false teaching? So doctrinal convictions. Thirdly, and this comes back to the way that the congregation treated um, Athanasius in the desert, it's the importance of loving and caring and supporting the leaders that God has given you. Do you pray for your leaders? You may not have a pastor at the moment, but are you praying for the ruling elders and for if there's deacons? Are you praying that the Lord would Wisely guide them in the process that lies ahead. Um, Are you supporting and encouraging them? You know, sometimes, and I'm not saying this happens here, I'm pretty sure this is probably unique, but church members can be quite cutting in terms of the remarks against leadership at times. Encourage your leaders is what I would like to say to you. Pray for them. And then fourthly, um, The whole aspect of maturity and character uh, displayed in boldness and courage. um, Are we praying that the Lord would give us a tenacity to persevere for the truth to the end? Um, uh, Once again, what is really at the core of our lives will only be understood in the midst of the difficulties and struggles and trials and possibly persecution that comes our way. Be praying that God prepares us for that. Let me also say this. For those of you who are parents and grandparents, please pass on the faith meticulously, in detail. Prepare the next generation. There's no guarantee that this next generation is not going to face Christian persecution in this country. Um, As I said earlier, I don't wish that on anyone. But there is no guarantee that they're going to have the religious freedom that has been enjoyed for so long. Are we preparing our children with regards to understanding the faith... And to experientially live that out as well. And then just finally, um, always be ready. There must be a willingness and a readiness uh, to suffer and be hated in this world, in this age, in this life. Do not be so attracted and attached to this world that you will uh, cave in when the difficulties come your way. Um, Scripture reminds us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You Those words of Jesus. Jesus. And I think it's important that our, our lives, this is not our home. Our home has been prepared for us if we're in Christ. And we're simply finishing this pilgrimage. Hopefully, we desire to be faithful in this finishing of the pilgrimage until we actually cross that, that threshold and enter into the place that has been prepared for us by our Saviour. Athanasius, few churchgoers, many of you have heard of him, few churchgoers actually have heard of him, and uh, few have actually read anything. I hope that you will take up something. There's a couple of book recommendations in your notes. Take up something with regards to someone that God has used in a, in a bygone Europe. And uh, hopefully, I pray that it will stir your heart and encourage you to keep pressing on. Uh, one other thing I do want to encourage, and I'll say this before I close. If you're not reading church history, you really need to do that, please. I cannot recommend Good historical books sufficiently. One of them and this is not Athanasius, but this is a book on the time and the period of the Reformation, "The Unquenchable Flame" uh, by Michael Reeves. Um, it is excellently written, uh, and, and I would really put that forward as something that maybe you want to consider. It gives you insights with regards to what God was doing across Europe at the time of the Reformation. All right. Any final questions, comments, thoughts? All right. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the way that, as you have promised to build your church and to keep your church, Lord, we see that very clearly as we look over the pages of history. Father, I pray for each of the men and women and the boys and girls here. I pray, Lord, that each one, Lord, that you would continually draw them to yourself that they may love you more completely and more fully and Lord that the desire of their heart would be simply to serve you and to leave a legacy and pass on the legacy of the faith to those who come behind and those who they engage with on a day to day basis and so Father thank you for who you are thank you for those who have gone before us and the way that they have ironed out so many of the details and we pray Lord that you would allow us just to simply enjoy what they have left for us but ultimately that it would point to you that it would cause us to worship you in truth and in spirit and we pray this in Jesus name
1: amen amen, amen. amen. i'll hang around if you have any questions
0: um, i'll see you for the next one.